How do you feel when you are about to meet an important person? I think if you're like me, you, uh, you know, you try to up your game a little bit, you dress a little better, stand a little straighter, pay a little more attention, you're not sloppy and you're thinking about that person and, you know, you're anxious to have a little anxiety about it, to think, well, what What's it going to be like meeting this very famous or important person? Well, this morning I have news for you. Today, after six weeks in the book of Ezra, we finally get to meet him. We're going to meet Ezra in chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles there. As you're opening your Bible to Ezra 7, I want you to think about this thought. This is kind of the framework around which we're going to think about this chapter. True revival is based on the sound teaching of God's Word, not on emotional expressions. Sometimes we think of revival as uh, uh, having to do with emotional expressions, and emotional expressions certainly can come with true revival, but it's the sound teaching of God's Word that is the basis for true revival. The other thing that we'll discover here is that what feels like all of a sudden revival happens is often actually the work of years of preparation, that there's been a lot going on behind the scenes before real revival occurs. Now, we're going to be reading all of Ezra chapter 7. And there are some verses in here that aren't the most exciting in the world, at least in terms of thinking about our own personal relevance to them. Just understand that it's my belief that the most important thing that we will do in a worship service is read God's Word. Because when we're reading God's Word, we know that we are on solid ground. So while not all of it feels like it's the most relevant thing to me, perhaps, as I'm reading it, I want you to think about this. God has commanded that churches commit themselves to the public reading of Scripture and that there may be more there, there, than you imagine. And so as we read it, and you come to spots where you go, man, I have no idea why we're reading this out loud. Make it your prayer. Lord, make your word real to me. Okay? So let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And as we do this, just know that I'm going to make up the pronunciation of a lot of names here, right? I'll speak it with confidence and you'll think I know something that I don't. Ezra chapter 7. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Zariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariah, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord is God 
was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people, and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which, is, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasures in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach." Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Please have a seat. 
True revival is based on the sound teaching of God's Word, not on emotional expressions. And what can feel like moments of sudden revival is often the work of years of preparation. As we look at this text, we have to ask ourselves the question first, as we're introduced to this important person, who is he? (laughs) Who was Ezra and what was the purpose of his life? Who was Ezra and what was the purpose of his life? Up until now, in chapters 1 through 6, that forms a section of the book that covers a period from about 539 to 515 B.C. Here in chapter 7, we're moving to about 60 years after the events of chapters 1 to 6. So we move from chapter 6 to chapter 7, and 60 years have have passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And here in verses 1 to 5, we are introduced to Ezra with a long description of his genealogy. Have you ever wondered why there are these genealogies in the Bible? And why is Ezra's genealogy here? Well, first, it vouches for Ezra's qualification to be a priest. In order to be a priest at the temple of Jerusalem, you had to be able to draw a connection between you back to Aaron, okay? And if you could not prove that you were connected to Aaron, the first priest of of Israel, then you would not be allowed to be a priest. And so, some of these records were maintained through the Babylonian captivity, and some of them were destroyed, and some people lost their paperwork, right? And the peoples whose records were destroyed and who lost their paperwork, guess what? they could not be priests. So that's why one reason why this genealogy is here is that Ezra actually has a record of his connection all the way back to Aaron. But the second reason is something that is why there's genealogies in the Bible. And that is a genealogy is an introduction to an important person. It's an introduction to an important person. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, we are introduced to a really long genealogy of Jesus. Why is that? Because Matthew wants his readers to know, I want to introduce you to a very important person. The same thing happens in Luke chapter 3, where we're introduced to another genealogy of the Lord Jesus. The point is to say that we're about to be introduced to a very important man, and that's true here in Ezra 7. Now, what's interesting is that even though we get the genealogy here in verses 1 through 5, it's not the complete genealogy of Ezra. If you want the complete genealogy, this is the Reader's Digest version. If you want the complete one, go to 1 Chronicles 6, where it's actually recorded. Ezra is introduced here in chapter 7 as a second Moses, as it were, a second Moses. He, more than any other man, was used by God to cause the people of Israel to be a people of the book of God, to be a people of the Scriptures. Before that, that was unclear. You remember in the last days of the kings, there was such a emptiness of the Scripture that uh, they didn't even read it. In fact, Josiah 
we're renovating some stuff and they go, oh, we found a book. <laughs> and it was the book of Deuteronomy. They, they didn't even know that, that that's how little the word of God had happened. In Amos chapter five, God said as a judgment on Israel, I'm gonna produce a famine, not of food, but a famine of the word of God. God help us if we reach that point in our world today with such a famine. So, Ezra is called a scribe. Now, those of us who live in the age of just making PDF files and sending them out by the thousands to as many people as we want to, don't have an appreciation of what a scribe is. And maybe those of you who don't even know what a PDF file is, think of a photocopier, okay? The fact is that back in Ezra's day, there were no such things. What did you have to do if you were going to make more copies of the Bible? You had to hand copy them. Ezra was a scribe. That is, he took a copy of the existing scripture and he would make a copy of it. And in the captivity with the temple destroyed, something changed in the worship of Israel. No longer was the worship centered around the temple and the sacrifices. Instead, they had gatherings. They called them sunagoge in, in Greek. It means they gathered together for the reading of God's word. It's the word synagogue, right? And that whole system was established during this captivity. And Ezra was a scribe who copied the scriptures so that the scriptures could be read in the worship of the Jews in these gatherings. No longer could they have it. They didn't even have a temple, so they couldn't do temple sacrifices, but they had these places where they read the scriptures and made copies. The scribes were so careful about their copying. Here's just one example. There's a bunch of them, but here's one example. Let's say that Ezra is copying the book of Deuteronomy. The scribes knew what the middle letter of the book was supposed to be. They would count the number of letters, they would count what the middle letter was, and then they would make their copy and they would, they would count it to see if the middle letter of the copy was the same as the middle letter of the original that they were copying from, and if it wasn't the same, tear up the copy and throw it away. Isn't that amazing? To think about such diligence. And so Ezra is introduced here as a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, verse 6, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He was recognizing here in the Scriptures is an authoritative revelation of the living God. More than any other man. He was used by God to cause the people of Israel to be people of the book. Before, that was unclear. Ezra changed the focus to God's word. Now, you'll remember when you, I'm just going to say this in a, as an aside, remember when you move ahead to the New Testament, you have people who oppose Jesus that were called scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees of, of, of Jesus' day were people who copied the scriptures and people who led in the worship at the synagogues. Okay? Now, they distorted things. They were hypocritical. Jesus had many encounters with scribes and Pharisees that actually ended up leading to his death, okay? But here's the point. The point was that Ezra changed 
the focus of the worship of Israel to God's Word. While it's true that the scribes and Pharisees later distorted God's Word, the debate at least was changed to the right question. And the right question is, what does God's Word say? That's the right question. You got to start at least with the right question, don't you? (laughs) And the question is now centered on the right place. What does God's Word say? Ezra was the guy behind all that. By the way, that's always the best first question that any of us should ask about anything. Whenever you encounter literally anything, the first question a true believer in Jesus should ask is, well, what does the Bible say? Let's, let's at least look to the Scriptures first. It's a great first question. So verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. His family had been carried off. He returned, not in the first wave, which was 60 years earlier, but he returned. The Lord granted, or excuse me, the king granted him all the asked, verse 6, because the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We're going to see that phrase repeated several times. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. This personal relationship with God is evident right there in verse 6. Do you see it? The hand of the Lord, and what's the next word? His God. He had a personal relationship with this living God. The Scriptures were no dry-as-dust academic exercise for Ezra. It was a personal encounter with the living God that he was experiencing. The hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Verse 10, we have Ezra's mission statement. It was the statement of his life, the passion of his heart, why he existed. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Study, do, teach. Study, do, teach. He's going to study the law of the Lord, know what it says, then he's going to apply it, think about what the implications are and how to live it out, and then how to, how to disciple others, how to teach other people these same things. This is the passion of his life. That's who Ezra is, and that was the passion of his life. Verse 11, he was a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Now, in verse 12, we're introduced to Artaxerxes. Uh, How does, uh, let's see, how does Artaxerxes empower Ezra? Well, uh, first we got to look at this list of kings, you see that Cyrus the Great was the guy that first caused the decree for the Israelites to return, and then under his son, the building on the temple was stopped for about 10 years. Under Darius, who wasn't related to those two guys, he becomes king and he restarts it up. And then Ahasuerus becomes king, who is Esther's husband. The book of Esther is written from that period of time. And then Artaxerxes is Ahasuerus' son, um, and Ezra arrives in Israel, and the work will, as we will see in later chapters, it doesn't happen in chapter 7, but the work stops and then it's renewed again seven years later. 
this is the Artaxerxes that we're talking about. Now, there's not a lot that is, um, there's not a lot of material remains from Artaxerxes' life for some reason. So we've got this picture of him on a relief. We've got this palace, and that's a terrible photo of it. But, you know, you get an idea that this was a real guy who lives in a real place. And you'll see, verse 12, that he shows his favor to Ezra, peace from the king of kings, he calls himself. And verse 13, he says, anybody is free to return with you, Ezra. Verse 14, he says, you're sent by the king to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem, to check it out, figure out what's going on there. Um, By the way, just look at verse 14 for just a second. You're sent by the king and his seven counselors. Uh, You might remember back in Ezra chapter 1, or not Ezra, Esther, Esther chapter 1, where King Ahasuerus has this queen and he wants to put her on display and she says nothing doing, so he talks over with his counselors what to do about that. And it says in Esther 1.14, he consulted with his seven counselors. So there's a connection somehow in the way the Persians govern things where they would have a seven-member cabinet, if you will. This is found in Artaxerxes, uh, just as it was in his father. Uh, verse 15 and 16, you're to take the silver and gold, return it to Babylon, return it from Babylon, along with any free will offerings that are there. That's another commandment from Artaxerxes. Verses 17 and 18, use the money for buying items for temple sacrifice, and you're free to do whatever you wish with any remainder as God would direct you. Verse 19, the vessels are to be returned there. And verse 20, if there's any lack, take what's needed from the king's treasury. Take it from the government coffers. And then in verses 21 to 24, what you have is not so much a directive to Ezra, Verses 21 to 24 is a directive to the treasurers in the province, that is, the bureaucrats. (laughs) And he says, uh, whatever Ezra requires of you guys regarding it, uh, you should do it without red tape, without the typical Persian red tape. That's why the phrase, do it with all diligence, right? And then a point, he says, uh, make sure that what is done is as God requires, Verse 23, and here's why, lest that wrath of God be against the realm of the king and his sons. Isn't that amazing? That somehow Artaxerxes is concerned about God's wrath not falling on him, and he calls the God of Israel here in this verse the God of heaven. That there's some way in which Artaxerxes himself is recognizing we're dealing with a different deity than what all the different deities in my 127 uh, provinces are, are dealing with. He says, uh, this is kind of funny, uh, verse 24, he says, uh, I'm making a non-for-profit organization that's tax-free. I'm giving them tax-free status. Do you see it? Not lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll. There's three different kinds of Persian taxes. On any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, temple servants, other servants of this house of God. Tax-free status for the nonprofit. That was 
Artaxerxes empowering Ezra. Remember how we've talked about the, that God is in charge of the kings of the world? Here in these verses, verses 11 through 24, we see a remarkable thing. Here they had been exiled. They didn't have a place. They didn't have a people. They didn't have a temple. And now all of that is being restored and not because they deserved it, but because of just the pure grace of God working in a guy like Artaxerxes. So let's look at Ezra's work and worship. First, his work, verses 25 and 26. Ezra was to work according to the wisdom that was given him, to appoint judges according to the laws of God. And if there were any who didn't know such laws, Ezra was told to teach them. Those that don't know them, you shall teach. And then Ezra himself is called upon by the king to be the ultimate arbiter of justice in the province regarding the law of God and the law of the king. In other words, Ezra is the one who executes justice. And there are four different kinds of punishments that Ezra was authorized to mete out to any lawbreakers. He could impose, for example, in verse 24, uh, or excuse me, verse 25, excuse me, verse 26, I'm skipping by here, whether for death, so he could impose the death penalty, or banishment, he could banish them from the province, or for confiscation of his goods, that is to impose fines, or for imprisonment. So those are four different kinds of punishments that the king authorized Ezra to be able to execute in the province called Beyond the River. Death, banishment, confiscation of property, and imprisonment. That's Ezra's work. Now verses 27 and 28, for the first time in the book of Ezra, Ezra himself speaks, okay? This, these are the words of Ezra speaking. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. This feels backwards to us. Because most of the time when we think of blessing, we think of asking God to bless us, don't we? Oh Lord, bless me. Bless my family. Bless our work. Bless our health. Those are not wrong prayers to pray. But there's another prayer that's prayed in the Bible of us blessing God. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What does it mean to bless the Lord? We understand what it means to ask God to bless us, but what does it mean for us to bless God? Does that mean that we're hoping that we have some power to bestow on God something? No, no, no. It's not at all that. The blessing of God, is when we bless God, what we are saying is, God, we know who you are, and we know who we are. You're God, we're not, and we love you for it. We love you for it. You are our God. Bless the Lord. And so as Ezra contemplates all of this remarkable change 
in his life being this exile up in Babylon and now the king commissioning him to go back to the land of the Bible and to with the, beautify the temple that had been built 60 years earlier and now to study the law and to do it and to teach the statutes in Israel, to be able to do that, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. This is unknown that a king would do this for me. And he sees it not as blessed be you, O Artaxerxes, but blessed be the Lord who put it into the heart of the king. God planted the idea in Artaxerxes' heart. As we have seen before in Ezra, governments and kings are in God's hand. Blessed be the Lord to put it into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. This opportunity that he has to engage in something so magnificent. And then he says, verse 28, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. God's covenant loyalty is extended now to me, he says, and I took courage. Oh, I don't know about you, but we live in a world where we can be frightened by all kinds of things, and I imagine Ezra is no different. And he's thinking, man, I study the word, I do it, and I And then he comes upon the idea of teaching it, and he might be feeling very lacking in courage, very fearful. Who am I? What value do I have? He may even be aware of his own sinfulness and brokenness, and he says, the Lord is the one who has done all this, and I took courage. Why? For the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. There's that personal relationship with God again. This is the third time in this chapter where that phrase happens. Look back at verse 6. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Verse 9, end of the verse. For the good hand of his God was on him. And now here in verse 28. For the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. God blessed him by turning a pagan king to be kind to the Jews. God blessed him by opening the invitation to worship to anyone who wants, anyone who desires. God blessed by making financial provision for the Jews to accomplish God's will. God blessed by making legal protection for the freedom to worship. God blesses by giving the freedom to Ezra and the Jews to self-governance. God blesses by bringing honor to his word among pagan rulers. And, And Ezra's response is praise. How do we apply this to our current moment? First, would you take time in your prayers not just to ask God to bless you, but for you to bless God? Don't forget his benefits. Take time and name them. And just say, God, I bless your holy name. You're God, I'm not. And I love you. Second, don't worry. I know as soon as you say that word, don't worry, it starts to think about worrying, don't you? (laughs) 
But let's just all relax a little bit as believers, truly. We should not fret about the downward spiral of our culture, although that is real. We should not fret about the affairs in the world, although those affairs are miserable and horrible and could be catastrophic. Those aren't meaningless things, but as believers in Jesus, we do not have to worry. We do not have to fret. God is in control of the affairs of men and women and boys and girls, and He will keep charge over your life. Psalm 139 that we read earlier today, that Paul read to us, is so true. The good hand of his God was on him. How is it that God's good hand of blessing can be on us? Notice that's a personal relationship. The hand of the Lord, his God. And the end was the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. It's a personal relationship. How do we get that personal relationship? Not by doing more. It's by faith. By trusting God, by believing in His Son, Jesus, by humbling ourselves before Him. As the most famous verse in all the Bible tells us, we have to believe it. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever works hard, nope, whoever has talent and uses it, Whoever has power and authority, none of that. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have an eternal life. It's through faith that we have this good hand of our God upon us. If we believe in Jesus and are humble before Him, God promises us life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. True revival is based on the sound teaching of God's Word, not emotional expressions and what feels like moments in the making. Here we have this moment of revival. It was years in the process of preparation in Ezra's life and the life of Israel and all all the people that returned. God was up to something amazing. Will you be that man or that woman who says to the Lord, I'm yours, I give my life to you? I will pray for revival knowing that I might experience it but I also might just be among the number who prepare the way for it. You know, there's all kinds of stories of people who pray for years for revival, never see it, and right after their death, all of a sudden revival breaks out in their neighborhood or in their town or in their community. There are stories of people who spend years on the mission field trying to take the gospel to some uh, people group that has never heard of Jesus, and it's just 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 a hard place and no results and that person dies, and then someone comes along as a new missionary and says, hey, anyone, anybody want to believe in Jesus? And the whole tribe comes to know Christ. And you think, wow, that second missionary, he was really good. No. What happened was that what's years in preparation can look like moments in the works. Will you be that man or that woman, whether you are one for the years of preparation or for the moment of the joy of revival, will say, God, I'm yours. 
How do we get to a place where we bless the Lord, where we relax from our worry, where we grow in our faith of God's good hand of blessing? Well, I think where we, how we do that is by doing what Ezra did in his mission statement, to study the Scriptures, to do it, and to teach it. You know, there's an interesting thing here in terms of Ezra's life purpose, right? He set his heart to study, to do, and to teach. Here at East White Oak, we have what we call vital signs. I want you to notice the parallel here. First vital sign that we have is um, rooted in Scripture. Rooted in Scripture. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. You see, we can do that. We can do that. Second, our second vital sign, growing in Christ. That's to look at the Scriptures and then what it says we do. (laughs) That's what it means to grow in Christ. Third, making disciples. That amazing thought to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I believe that God's called everybody to be in Ezra. Oh, you may not have what's called the spiritual gift of teaching. You may not be a person who would say, okay, I'm going to publicly go proclaim God's word or something. But every one of us can, as believers in Jesus, study, do, and teach and pass on our faith to the next generation. This morning, I want to share with you a brief video that tells the stories of several of our East White Oak folks and how God has used them in in just a humble and remarkable way in their teaching ministry and to see how God does amazing things when we simply make ourselves available. Let's watch this brief video of these folks from our church. Teaching God's Word in Children's Bible Fellowship is a privilege and a joy. From a young age, I had the benefit of having Sunday school teachers who faithfully taught me, and now I have the blessing of pouring into the next generation. Teaching the Bible takes time and careful study, and that comes in handy for answering questions from inquisitive young minds. When I don't know an answer, that's okay. It's a chance for me to learn something new myself. It's a privilege to even be a small part of children learning about who God is and what His Word says. But it's not only the kids who are learning. Many times, because I'm a Bible teacher, my own faith is strengthened when I'm reminded of important truths about God, His character, His steadfast love, and purposes. I study the Bible to teach an adult Bible fellowship on Sunday mornings. But something else happens during the week as I prepare. I get humbled by the biblical passages that I'm studying. The Bible challenges any misconceptions I might have about who God really is. I'm convicted of my sin in light of the true holiness of my God and necessity of my Savior. In the Bible, I study the love and eternal promises of God. That leads me to ponder the insignificance of my earthly struggles. The Bible exposes me to eternal wisdom and helps me clarify and discern difficult matters both at work and at home. Teaching the Bible is such a faith-building experience. It gives me the opportunity to deeply ponder the passages that I'm teaching and apply them to my own life, even as I prepare to teach others. I consider it a precious time set aside to commune with my loving Creator. I have been so blessed to encourage and equip others by teaching the Bible. 
I have benefited from the relationships of real support, praying for others and being prayed for, serving others and being served. I have been a Bible teacher of two-year-olds, third graders, and women, and through each of these experiences, I have fallen more in love with Jesus. As I have gotten to know Him better, my faith has grown. When my husband passed away, I know that I was sustained in part by the truth cemented in my heart and my mind, having taught it to children and other adults. I have confidence to stand firm on the truth. I have peace in the midst of trials, and I am comforted by my all-knowing, good, and ever-present God. I haven't always felt particularly qualified to be a Bible teacher, but that has caused me to rely on Him solely to equip me rather than relying on my own personality and talents. I am so glad for the ways that the Lord has transformed me by studying His Word and then teaching others. I have been involved with teaching preschoolers for several years now. When I started teaching, I didn't have kids of my own, so I really didn't know what to expect. One thing that amazes me about teaching these kids is how their brains are like little sponges, soaking up the information, even when you think they're not listening. Many times they leave class and I think to myself, well, they didn't listen to a word I just said, only to have them return the following week and remember most, if not all, of what we discussed the previous week. One of the greatest blessings of teaching is the front row seat that I have to watch God at work in the lives of this next generation of believers. Another blessing is how my faith is being strengthened as I come to know God better while studying and preparing for these Bible lessons. During my preparation, I'm regularly reminded of the sovereignty of God, that He is in control and His awesome plan of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. I began leading a women's Bible study a little over 15 years ago when the previous leader of the Stonecroft study I was participating in announced she would not be able to continue to lead our group. At that time, I had no experience in leading the Bible study, but I felt a strong nudge from the Lord to just say yes to this area of service, and I am so glad that I did. I have found that teaching others from the Bible has been God's way of drawing me into a closer, deeper, and more meaningful understanding of who He is. And I have also discovered that I have a much deeper, loving relationship with Jesus. There is no doubt that leading a Bible study or teaching others from God's Word, whether adults or children, carries with it the added responsibility of being willing to learn more personally in order to lead or teach well. But that is truly what has led to one of the biggest blessings in my spiritual life, which is to know God better and to love Jesus more. And along the way, I have developed a great desire to tell others what I have discovered while teaching from the Bible. Early on, when our family started attending East White Oak, I was asked to serve with the kids on Wednesday nights. I said no at first. I said no a couple more times before I finally agreed. It ended up being such a blessing to lead and to teach kids. More recently, my teaching has been as a substitute teacher in a few adult Bible fellowships. Teaching adults makes me a little uncomfortable because I'm pretty sure that many of them, maybe even all of them, know more about the Bible than I do. But teaching has caused me to study more than I would have otherwise, and more importantly, to really rely on God. After all, it's God's Word. It's His message that we want to communicate. 
and we can really only do that through Him. I could serve the Lord in other ways, but I'd be hard pressed to find a better way to serve Him than teaching others. I'm convinced that the one who learns the most when I teach is me. Three things emerge here. Humility, teaching humbles us. Dependency, you have to depend on God. And the teacher always is the one that gets all the golden, all the gold, all the good stuff. (laughs) And so what I just want to introduce to you is this idea. Ezra committed himself to study, to do, and to teach. Rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, making disciples. Don't automatically come to the place where you go, well, I could never teach, or I can't do that. Open yourself up to the possibility that God may indeed be calling you to teach. Maybe formally in the church in some way, or some class, but certainly in your families, moms and dads, teaching the truths of Scripture to your children. Don't just leave it to the church to do that teaching. You do it. Grandparents, imparting the truths of God's Word to your grandchildren. Not just being happy grandma and grandpa, although that's a great thing to do, um, but being one who introduces them to Christ and the truths of God's Word. In this way, whether formally or informally, we fulfill this mission statement that Ezra had. He committed himself to study the Word of God, to do it and to teach its statutes in Israel. This morning, we're going to take time to remember our Lord at His wonderful meal that He gave us, where we remember His death. Everybody who's a believer is welcome at this table. Uh, We will remember the Lord's broken body by the bread that we partake. We remember the Lord's blood shed for us at the cup that we drink. Feel free to stand when you desire and go to one of the five stations. Don't feel like you have to go up row by row. Don't feel rushed. Consider what the Lord has done for you.